The statements expressed in the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, the podcast where we interview the people shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about vulnerability theory and how it can transform and is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. My name is Mangala Kanesan. Today, I'm grateful to have Jennifer Hickey on the show as my guest. Thank you for being here, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. Jennifer is a postdoctoral fellow at the Vulnerability and the Human Condition Initiative at Emory Law. She's interested in the intersection of birth justice, government accountability, police misconduct, and vulnerability. Quickly, in 30 seconds, how would you describe vulnerability theory? What's your elevator speech? Okay, it might take me just a little longer than 30 seconds. Uh, well, I would say that vulnerability theory, first and foremost, begins with the recognition that as embodied beings, we're constantly susceptible to changes uh, in physical and social well-being. And this universal and constant vulnerability is an essential aspect of our human condition. And vulnerability theory just asserts that this vulnerable subject should be at the heart of our systems of law and justice, rather than the traditional legal subject who is seen as an autonomous, independent, fully functioning adult. And then from that universal legal subject, vulnerability theory further argues that the state has to recognize and respond to this shared vulnerability that is our human condition. And in so doing, it needs to regulate and establish and support social institutions that provide us with the tools needed to achieve resilience. And as embodied beings, we are inevitably dependent upon these social institutions, and vulnerability theory requires the state to monitor them and make sure that there are no power imbalances, privilege is not conferred unequally, and institutions provide us our resources needed for resilience in an equitable manner. And I think this is important by focusing on inequality of resilience, vulnerability theory shifts the focus from individuals to institutions. Can you tell me a little more about what inequality of resilience means? Right. So I guess this is in some ways mirrors the discussion of formal versus substantive equality that we have quite a bit. Um, it's essentially the idea that while humans are universally and constantly vulnerable, so we don't vary necessarily in how we are vulnerable, but we vary in terms of our ability to achieve resilience. Um, so essentially, this idea that we rely on social institutions for a myriad of things that help us to kind of achieve this potential, if you will. And not all of us have equal levels of reliance. Like That depends a lot on socioeconomic conditions and just a variety of other factors that come into play there. So when we talk about inequality of resilience, we're talking, you know, one, about just the environment in which people who need resources from the state find themselves in, uh, but also the inequitable way that social institutions actually go about providing this resilience for people. How should the state respond to that? And how does the state currently disperse resilience or disperse these resources? Right. That's a pretty broad question in this set of questions. So I'll, I'll address a few different things. You know, why do we need it? Why does it matter? I think first and foremost, you know, it's a challenge to the dominant neoliberal ideology that's been, you know, in the U.S. prominent for 40 years or so since the Reagan administration. And what this has produced is just, you know, massive income inequality uh, within the U.S. We're seeing that rise over time. You know, it's been tied directly to this 
neoliberal deification of the market, the private market, as the ways in which individuals achieve. They don't use the term resilience, but the ways in which individuals achieve, you know, freedom of choice um, and liberty. And I think this kind of deification of of the market and business principles and privatization, um, and and most importantly, the rhetoric of not only minimal government interference, uh, but also this idea that the government is inherently bad, right? Like we essentially should have as little government help as possible. We're looking specifically at individuals and their rights to be free from the tyranny of government. Uh, and and I guess also just, you know, discourse around how not only is big government an intrusion on our individual rights, but also that the government itself is completely ineffective and there's no hope of curing it. So there's a lot of these like dominant narratives that have kind of come out of neoliberalism and in turn have produced just massive inequalities within our society um, and kind of left people to fend for themselves, right? So it's this kind of overarching political rhetoric of individual choice and concomitant responsibility, right? So if if you're struggling financially, it's your fault, essentially. The government is not there to help you. And this narrative, you know, again, just sort of reinforces the fiction that everybody is, you know, equally able to help themselves uh, to achieve resilience. Um, so I think vulnerability theory sort of forces us to look at the fact that all of us are universally vulnerable. We all need this help from the state and the state has this responsibility to provide it. So in a sense, it kind of moves us from the negative rights, minimal state interference narrative to calling on the state to equitably provide for all of its citizens. And I think that right now with the way things are politically, um, that's more important than ever. Can you speak a bit to the difference between vulnerability, the way that it's used today Mm -hmm. in dominant discourse, and vulnerability as a term of art within vulnerability theory? Vulnerable populations as defined by law right now are groups largely based on identity characteristics of of people in social situations or identity characteristics that the law has determined are in need of special protection. So, you know, this idea of like the elderly or the disabled as vulnerable populations and thus need special protection from the state is different than the more universal concept of vulnerability that vulnerability theory brings to the table. This idea that this is just an inevitable part of the human condition. It's not a designation that someone can place upon you. Um, And it's not different. Vulnerability is universal in concept. It arises from us all having bodies. It's a shared characteristic. Um, it's just inherent. It's ontological, you know, whereas vulnerable populations are designated by law. It's somebody has decided that these particular people with these characteristics are, you know, quote, vulnerable. One of your interests is birth justice. Mm-hmm. Can you give me some examples of how this neoliberal ideology manifests in policies that directly impact birth justice? Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the areas that that vulnerability theory in general touches on that's relevant to that is the notion of privacy. And that, you know, comes up quite a bit in reproductive areas, right? So this idea that you know, what we really want is individual privacy, individual choice. And so we don't look at the state as needing to be responsive to 
you know, the experiences of women as they're pregnant and as they're giving birth, right? So we're not thinking, we're not even necessarily rhetorically thinking about, you know, what should the state be doing to help us there? But rather, the narrative, I think, is is about, you know, informed consent, for example. Um, so this idea that, you know, it's perfectly fine for women to seek medical care um, so long as they're told about all of their you know, options and choices and and that type of thing, and they can make the decisions that are best for them. And even if that happens, which, you know, I would argue probably doesn't happen nearly enough, um, or there's a checkbox that's relevant to informed consent, you know, that that starts with the fiction that all women are capable of being in a position where not only they can fully understand their legal rights in childbirth, uh, but that they're able to exercise these rights when, in fact, there's a number of socioeconomic constraints on women's ability to, you know, question their doctors or even obtain an appropriate level of care in the first place, you know, much less get to a point where they're asserting individual birthrights, you know, during what is supposed to be, you know, one of the most positive experiences for them. So I think when I, you know, you asked me, I think specifically about neoliberal influences there, and I would say it's really the emphasis on privatization and the medical marketplace, I think, um, that kind of speaks specifically to um, the neoliberal philosophy. So this idea that, you know, women are just free to choose providers, free to, you know, switch providers if they are not happy with their experience. And none of that is actually true most of the time. I mean, there are, there are very real constraints on women's ability to access birth care. Can you tell me about some of those constraints and how a responsive state should address them? Right. So specifically, my work is looking mostly at uh, the phenomenon of obstetric violence. So this is kind of the essentially what half the trauma that women can experience during birth, um, mostly through forced interventions. So things like unnecessary C-sections, for example, even down to, I guess, what we might consider smaller things like not being allowed to eat during delivery or things of that nature. And so from that perspective, you know, I'm kind of looking at, you know, what those states should do to respond to women's experiences, because in the traditional legal system, they're very minimized. In tort law, for example, if you're dealing with a birth situation, if there is a healthy fetus, what happens to the mother is not very relevant, you know. So as long as the, the outcome is that a fetus is healthy, birth trauma does not matter. So I would say in, I guess, looking to have a non-traumatic birth experience, women are very seriously constrained, first of all, by the insurance industry. I think most everybody is aware of the high medical costs associated with giving birth, um, and almost everybody needs some form of insurance to try to lower that. And, you know, if you're fortunate enough to even get insurance, then you're very much constrained by the providers that they let you see and the procedures that are done. Um, I think insurance further constrains the providers as well, because, you know, one of the things I think taking a vulnerability approach to this problem does is to make us focus, you know, on the motivations of the healthcare providers as well as institutions, the hospitals, the doctors, the insurance companies. You know, what's this holistic picture? You know, what are their vulnerabilities, their institutional vulnerabilities that might cause them to mistreat a woman in birth, right? For example, doctors, we all know, are very busy people. Um, You know, historically, perhaps they have a million patients and they may decide to recommend a C-section for a woman who doesn't need it simply because of a scheduling issue. Uh, And there's just a number of factors like that, right? So in looking at, you know, how women are constrained in their choices, I think first and foremost, it's just the fact that they're kind of 
very constrained with the availability of medical care. But as I mentioned before, too, I think there's a number of like cultural and social constraints on women's ability to question the choices of their doctors, um, just because there's a imbalance of power necessarily in a doctor patient relationship. And I think that that is often overlooked. Again, we're just assuming autonomous individuals, a woman walks into exam room and isn't extremely concerned with the, you know, anything a doctor is going to tell her she needs to do for her fetus, right? She's already in this position where, you know, there's just an extreme imbalance of power. Um, I think the current approach of informing women of their rights in birth, you know, it's necessary, but I don't think that it solves the whole problem because there are just so many constraints on even exercising these rights. Mm -hmm. So this power imbalance that you just talked about, that exists in so many social relationships. How does vulnerability seek to either shift that power imbalance or to, to make it more equal or to address it in a way that puts a bit more responsibility on the person who has more power. Right. So I think that's kind of at the heart of vulnerability theory in a way is, is in addressing those power imbalances in, in social relationships and focusing on, I guess, social identities as opposed to traditional identity characteristics like race and sex. So in, in something like a doctor-patient relationship, you know, for example, vulnerability theory, I think, you know, attempts to examine the institution, right? So the role of the state is to examine and take responsibility for these social institutions, in this case, maybe a hospital, right, in the case of birthing, to regularly monitor and correct, you know, these areas of power. So the the responsibility is very much on the institution and not on the individual, I think, is what makes vulnerability theory particularly unique in that regard. Is the responsibility on the institution because the institution has more power than the individual? I mean, I think that is true most of the time that the institutions do have more power. I don't know if that's, if it's a causation relationship necessarily. I mean, I think it's just because it stems from, you know, our dependence on the state for the tools that are needed for resilience and thus the state's responsibility for social institutions. So when we think about things like privatization, you know, the argument is essentially that the state is involved in virtually every area of our lives, whether we think they are or not. So, you know, even looking at things like hospitals, right, the state has a number of of regulations, even for private hospitals. So the state is involved in either regulating or helping to create essentially all of the social institutions that provide us with resilience. And I think that it's our recognition of the response of state that actually is what shifts the focus. It does so happen that I think most of the time, the institution is the one with the power, um, probably all the time. Um, and I do think, you know, questioning the power imbalances, questioning the privileges uh, is very much a part of vulnerability theory. Uh, but I think, like I said, that responsibility stems from us recognizing the, the need for a responsive state. What makes the institution responsible? Is it is the institution responsible or is the state Only to the – it's the state. The state is definitely okay. responsible. But, you know – First of all, the institutions could be state institutions, right? Like we're not necessarily, when we say institution, we're not just talking about like private institutions, right? Or they can even be essentially social arrangements, like the family is an institution, right? So I think that we say that traditionally or just the way that we're socially organized, these institutions provide tools that we need for resilience, right? Um, Whether they're public or private. But that we think that the state 
ultimately has that responsibility. And so it uses these institutions and it monitors these institutions to ensure that they're providing resources equitably. But I think ultimately the responsibility is on the state. Now, like I said, like, I mean, delegation is not a bad word to use there. I mean, that does happen. And to some extent, that's okay, um, as long as we're not masking, right? So when you think about inevitable dependencies that arise in all of us because of our universal vulnerability, you know, traditionally, I think dependency has been uh, very much privatized in the realm of family, right? Like we tend to think of the family as being solely responsible for taking care of, for example, dependent children. Um, and as such, you know, we kind of are leaving these families to fend for themselves. So in a way, it's abdication of responsibility by the state. And that's, I think, what vulnerability theory wants to bring into the spotlight, right? Is that this idea that this is the state's responsibility and they cannot abdicate it simply by saying, you know, relegating it to the private sphere of family life. And I think the more practical proof, if you will, that, <laughs> that the state, you know, is already involved is to think about all of the many laws and the ways in which the state regulates the family. So for them to say, oh, well, this is totally private and we don't belong in here is a fiction because they're already, let me look at marriage laws and things like that. They're already very involved in the institution of the family. So we're saying, hey, let's recognize this reality. The state is involved everywhere, whether they say they are or not. And as such, they are positioned to correct these power imbalances and these these privileges that are preventing people from achieving resilience. So vulnerability dispels the myth of privacy. In a way, yeah. yeah. And actually, some of my work really addresses that. Um, you know, both the birth justice and um, I've been separately working on um, vulnerability theory as applied to police misconduct. Mm. And I think in both cases, you know, privacy is discussed a lot. You know, there's a very there's the rhetoric of, you know, invasion of privacy, you know, um, intrusion onto my individual privacy rights. And I don't mean to imply that we do not have, you know, bodily autonomy to some extent. Obviously, that's extremely important. Um, but just to say that I think kind of shifting that focus away from kind of the adversarial assumption that the state is trying to invade my privacy, you know, shifting that focus a little bit more towards, you know, you know, what is the right way for the state to help me in birth? What is the right way for the state to be involved in this? Because again, it's sort of a fiction to say that they're not in some ways. They're in the case of birth, the state has a big interest in my giving birth and reproducing society, right? Otherwise we're gone. <laughs> and again, you know, there's regulations and, and laws around that. So, you know, I don't think it's the question I, to me isn't so much like should the state get involved and intrude on my privacy rights, but rather like how can the state help me achieve resilience in this area? And I think, you know, to some extent, my work around police misconduct is a bit of the same thing. Um, again, not to minimize the concept of bodily autonomy or privacy in general, but just to say that that I don't think that that rhetoric, like putting individual privacy first and foremost, is the best way for us to to look at these issues in a systemic way. What does vulnerability theory do for politics? Right. Um, so, I mean, aside from, I think, everything we've, we've discussed already in terms of, like, reframing the political discourse, you know, from one of individual rights to a more collective social responsibility. Um, and I guess before I transition off of that, I should say, I think politics to me is also very 
I guess, wrapped up in social movements as well. So just kind of in addressing what we think of as social justice as well. Like I think um, Professor Feynman has done some work, recent work around this, but, you know, this idea that vulnerability theory kind of helps us recognize that when we talk about social justice, we've kind of, again, increasingly moved away from the social to focus more on the individual, um, the individual's rights within the collective. And I think that the theory kind of helps pull us back and, and remind us that it's not about a specific individual's rights, but, you know, to achieve social justice, right? The word social means for us that the state is adequately responding to our vulnerability. Um, and I think alongside of that, you know, with this being an election year, um, I think it's important to note that vulnerability theory also imposes kind of a collective responsibility on us as citizens to, you know, monitor the state for vulnerabilities as well. So, you know, being a framework that looks at institutional vulnerability and state vulnerability also, you know, we recognize, yes, the state is vulnerable. It can be captured. It can be corrupted. Certainly, you know, the narrative of government being somewhat corrupt is is not entirely unfounded in fact. And so I think, you know, we're given sort of like an ethical imperative as, as part of this collective responsibility to participate in the political process and ensure that the state itself is addressing its vulnerabilities um, to capture and corruption. You know, and this is evident, I think, in, again, kind of the inevitable consequence of neoliberalism, you know, that we're seeing more and more the idea of money as speech, money as influence, right? I mean, this has come across in some Supreme Court cases in the past. It's just something we're seeing time and again where elite individuals with potentially counter-majoritarian preferences are shaping a lot of our policy through monetary influence. And so I think we have to take a look at what we can do as political participants to try to correct that imbalance as well. So it's it's a state responsibility, but when we say the state, we also mean all of us. What are some other current issues that you'd like to see vulnerability theory applied to or that you already see it applied? One thing maybe I haven't yet stressed um, is vulnerability theory as a basis for kind of an ethical framework. You know, so we mentioned it as essentially challenging the dominant ideology of neoliberalism, but I think, you know, we're attempting to sort of build an ethical framework around that. Um, and we think, we tend to think of like, you know, legislative and judicial ethics, which are extremely important. But I think really ethics applies to almost every discipline, you know, I mean, every field in which we, our institutions interact with humans, right, which is pretty much everything. So I guess, you know, in short, I'd like to see it everywhere. Um, and I think it's relevant everywhere. Um, but some of the, I guess the, the things that stick out to me about, you know, where I've seen it applied, um, I think, one of the areas that interests me also is uh, technology. So I have a background as a software engineer, and I'm hoping, uh, if I have time, to, to extend my research. Uh, I'd like to take some of the existing work that's been done with vulnerability theory around technology and, I guess, extend it out to different concepts. So right now, I think we have some scholars who have looked, who've started to look at how vulnerability theory would apply to build up a code of ethics for people who are involved in constructing artificial intelligence or, you know, other forms of technology. Uh, so this idea of what is 
technology doing to us as humans, you know, from, I guess, the notion that we're being replaced in our jobs with artificial intelligence down to, you know, what happens in the neurological system as a result of, you know, all this time that we spend on, you know, looking at screens and dealing with technology. And I guess that recent thing about how children were developing horns. I don't know if you saw that. No. Yeah, there was a... Um, there was some recent article uh, that they've discovered, and I don't know why they call them horns, because I think they're at the base of the neck, but uh-huh. they've discovered, like, evolutionary-wise, that children are developing, like, these, like, things like horns at the base of their neck from looking down at their phones so wow. much. So there's all these, I guess, implications to our, you know, bodily vulnerability as well or, and our neurological and cognitive processes uh, that I think are ripe for exploration and, and have been, you know, uh, there's other researchers that are looking at that. Um, coming from a tech background, I, I I would like to take a different approach. I think those areas are really important to explore, uh, but I like to to maybe think a little bit more about how technology sort of aids in our humanity and what a responsive state should be doing to kind of help us integrate and use technology uh, to better ourselves as humans. Um, so that's one area I think I'd like to to see a little bit more of. But nonetheless, I mean, across the board, obviously, artificial intelligence technology are kind of, I think, ripe for a vulnerability analysis. Um, and then I think some other areas that, you know, we're seeing it in are um, like ecological and environmental concerns. Obviously, that's hugely important right now. And there's work done applying the theory uh, to how we interact with our ecological systems. Um, and then corporate responsibility. I think we've got a workshop coming up on that, and I'm really eager to to see what comes out of that and and how the theory is applied there. Because again, even though those are private institutions, the state has a role, and their corporations are obviously providing us with all kinds of resilience. So, you know, whether we are fans of privatization or not, I think it's it's an important thing to talk about. Um, so, I guess those are those are some of the areas that immediately come to mind. What would you like listeners to remember from our conversation today? Well, I, I guess regarding kind of both the political and social discourse, as well as calls for law reform, you know, I really want to focus on the, you know, the positive aspects of recognizing vulnerability and the constancy of our vulnerability as a shared human condition. I think often vulnerability is used in a negative light, um, as well as in a divisive light, you know, to to mark some people as more vulnerable than others. I guess thinking about our susceptibility to partially to harm, it's also to positive things as well, you know, isn't always the most cheerful thing. Um, but but I think that in general, like seeing us as all part of a shared human condition is empowering and, and positive um, and recognizing, you know, our obligations to to one another is a good thing. And so I think like I want to focus on kind of the positive aspect of vulnerability and then also, I think just, again, shifting our focus and in, in how we feel the state should interact with citizens, you know, again, just reiterating that, you know, from a social justice standpoint, I think um, for me, it's a more effective inquiry to ask essentially like how the state can equitably provide resources for the social, for all of us, you know, rather than to talk of social justice in terms of negative individual rights or, you know, rights to be free from government interference. Um, so I think, you know, that shift in focus and, you know, the kind of the concomitant focus on institutional responsibility versus individual, uh, I think I would really 
want to highlight that in particular, because I think the dominant neoliberal rhetoric of individual responsibility is extremely harmful to us as a society. It's polarizing, it's divisive. This concept that anybody is just individually responsible for whatever happens to them turns us away from our shared humanity. Um, so I think I would mostly want to implore people to, to think about it more you know, in those terms. Thank you so much for sitting down and having a conversation with me Thank today. Thank you. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. You can find us on SoundCloud and Stitcher. Thanks for tuning in.